It's so critical right now, and it is a big part of change management. Change is hard for people. We're living in this constant flux of change right now. And so building up your personal ability to be resilient is probably one of the most important pieces of advice that anybody can take right now around change. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Catherine Moore. She's the senior strategist at Heller Consulting and has really served the nonprofit sector for over 20 years, really focused on defining and guiding the strategic pathways for how technology, marketing, and fundraising collide. She brings her experience from spending a long time at the Canadian Cancer Society and others now to many organizations through her work with Heller Consulting. She really focuses on this idea of how do you address the human concerns that arise during a project as well as the technical challenges. What's the balance between people, processes, and platforms anytime you're trying to make a change? Catherine is full of knowledge, so let's dive in. Kathy, you have an extensive background, you know, that was deep into the nonprofit sector during your time at Canadian Cancer Society. And now you're a senior strategist at Heller, where you use your knowledge to kind of bring together the intersection of the constituent experience and technology and really help nonprofits navigate that. But what I'm interested to is hearing a little bit more about your background and how you even got into the cause space and specifically the technology angle of the cause space. Great. Thanks, Noah. Um, Well, like many people I know, I got into the cause space uh, because of a personal connection. Uh, My father was diagnosed with colon cancer many years ago, and uh, I ended up meeting a group of people online in um, a listserv, if you even remember that term. And uh, together we formed a nonprofit called the Colon Cancer Alliance. And that was my start into a uh, nonprofit. I was working 40 hours a week at a, at a paid job and 40 hours a week at the nonprofit that I'd helped found. And one day the job at the Canadian Cancer Society came up. And so I was able to marry this passion that I had been forming around nonprofit sector and actually getting paid for it. <laughs> Um, and that is also, always a nice thing. Always a nice thing. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's really where the technology came into play for me as well. I had studied um, business and psychology, and I found that uh, technology actually has a huge psychology element to it when you're thinking about the constituent or the user experience. And so I guess I became one of those accidental techies and uh, just got more and more interested in it. And when you work at a nonprofit, uh, they tend to throw work at you. And if you take it on, they let you take on more and more and more. And so my role in the nonprofit sector evolved as people gave me opportunities. And it's just been an incredible experience. And now you're at Heller and you're really using that experience to help mm-hmm. other nonprofits. So what do you usually spend your days doing um, at Heller alongside the, the Heller clients? Yeah, so... Um, I moved to Heller about four years ago, um, and that's been a great change for me. It was, a, you know, quote unquote, later in career change, uh, which is always interesting. But what I love about working with Heller is that I get to have a wider impact than just 
one nonprofit and get exposed to so many different challenges that nonprofits are facing. And we get to help them do what they're doing more effectively by leveraging technology. Um, you know, I think uh, we like to say we meet nonprofits where they are and we help them. And in my job in particular, we help them develop strategies uh, and then leverage technology to implement those strategies to achieve their business goals more effectively. Um, so, you know, what does that really look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Working with key stakeholders and organizations, working with some change management uh, techniques and practices to help them actually change the way they're doing things. Um, sometimes that involves changing the culture. Um, but it also involves looking at business processes and how we can improve those business processes and uh, selecting and implementing the right technologies for that nonprofit. Yeah, and you, you covered on three C words that I feel like are super important right now. And I want to dig further in because I think it's what you, you you dive into. You talked about this idea that we're, we're facing challenges and changes that we need to adapt for. You also talked about we need to change management. like, And that's something that I know you all are uh, experts at, at, Heller, and I want to dive into that. The other thing where I almost want to start with, because I feel like this, everyone listening to this thinks this is going to be a deep dive technology conversation, but you used another word, which was culture. How does culture play into the ability for a nonprofit to leverage technology to drive impact on their mission? Oh, so important. Um, culture is key and culture is actually harder to change than a business process. Um, I I love to use examples and stories because uh, I find they're uh, great ways to help people change. But a good example is if you have a culture of silos and, uh, you know, protecting my constituents, it's very hard to truly leverage the power of a CRM if people are trying to keep their data separate. The, the idea or the vision of a CRM is to create a customer experience that honors the whole customer's experience or constituent's experience with our organization. But if I'm keeping my data siloed, then you might not know that my client is also a major donor or a very significant volunteer in the organization. And changing that culture of protectionism is one of the hardest changes that organizations face when they're trying to become very constituent-centric. So now I have to ask the obvious question, Kathy, is we know it's challenging, but how did they do it? What, like, what are, what are some things that you've seen organizations do uh, to take intentional steps in that, that direction? Um, sometimes it involves bringing in a lot of research, uh, sometimes uh, uh, focus groups with actual donors to help them understand um, really, I think one of the most effective tools I've seen in change management in this space is the idea of looking for small wins. So working with a small group of donors who might also be clients and volunteers and just really listening and encouraging other people in the organization to listen to what those people are saying. Um, and change management is really a lot about deep and effective listening. And so how do you get people into that space where they can listen and let go of those ideas that they're really tied to? Um, that requires a little bit of work. It requires um, really understanding where people are coming from and getting them into a frame of mind of empathy. Uh, I um, 
have a certification around change management called change intelligence. And change management is, you know, it's a really, um, it's a great discipline that's really important in getting uh, increased attention in the nonprofit sector right now. Change management is about the processes and tools that we use to help people change. What I really like about the change intelligence is it's really about getting to understand people where they are and then helping them by understanding their style and their preferences make that individual transition to the right place. So it really does involve getting to know people, getting to understand their quote-unquote objections to use the old sales language and uh, then helping them make that journey. Yeah, I was a part of a big, large uh, nonprofit doing some consulting work. And we had, I think, like 4,000 employees, maybe a little bit more, you know, massive, massive nonprofit operation. And we were changing our platforming uh, to be able to power you know, the systems that we were trying to do, which enabled the strategies that we were trying to adopt. And we sat in a meeting where we were evaluating the big players, the obvious choices for a large nonprofit. And the CTO came in, sat down and said, it doesn't matter what platform we choose because the reason this is going to be successful or fail is based on our ability to get our team to adopt whatever choice you make in this room. So stop spending so much time deciding on what that is and spend more time deciding how we're going to make it work. And I, and then you walked out and that was it. And it's like this defining moment in my life where I was like, that's the most profound thing. Cause it was, you know, like you get in the weeds on like, well, should we do this or should we do that? Or what are the pros and cons of this? How do you advise organizations kind of navigate that process or even think through some of the ways that they can um, almost like what's the right order of change when you're thinking about systems change? Cause that's people, that's processes, that's platforms, which is important, but what's, what's the approach that they should be thinking about? Well, uh, I have to sidebar for a minute because what I love about your story is that it was the technology officer, chief technology officer that told you not to worry about the technology. And that's somebody who really understands change management. Um, so often we see people who think the technology will solve all of their business and people and process problems. And it doesn't work that way. So coming back to your question about the right way to think about it. We always want to work with our clients to identify that vision for the technology project. You might call it a technology project that you're undertaking. And we try and position it as, what is your change vision? What does that future state look like? And once we've identified that and people have agreed to that and committed to that, really committed to that, then we look at what are the critical things that have to happen to get your organization there? Um, so really, it is starting with strategy. How does this align with your business strategy? How does this align with your people strategy? And then what are the steps we have to take as an organization to get there? And, you know, we work really successfully with organizations at that vision and critical success factor stage. And then we see some organizations think, okay, we've done the change management work. Let's shift to the technology project. And then we see other organizations who are extremely successful with that adoption, who never stop on that change management track. They have executive sponsors who are continually involved, who are continually checking that things are on track with the vision and the critical success factors, that those things are being used as the rubric for decision-making in any technology step of the project, who keep all of the stakeholders informed all along the way, 
and who, you know, are continually thinking about adoption as a key metric all the way from the beginning of the project. So that means you're looking at how do people know, you know, know what's going on? Do they understand the reason behind the change? Do they feel excited about the change? Are they starting to build a desire for that change? Um, and then uh, once that desire starts coming along, you start to see people feeling anxiety about, am I going to be successful in this new platform? So from a change management perspective, you pivot your thinking to helping people start to feel comfortable with the change, how they're going to react to the change, how you're going to support them through that change. And then that starts to lead into training and then launch support and then reinforcement post-launch of how people are doing things right, celebrating successes, helping people who are struggling, who are challenged with the new technology by giving them reinforcement. So I think it's, you know, starting with the, the strategy or the high-level vision of what the future looks like, helping people understand that and then never stopping to pay attention to the people side of things. I think of, you know, when we do a, an implementation timeline diagram, we have, you know, the steps, discovery, design, testing, launch, but underneath that we have foundation of project management and a foundation of change management because those things go from the beginning all the way to the end and post project launch. You mentioned a few things there. And one of them though was this idea of defining the future state. Mm. And given like normal circumstances, I think that is quite challenging, you know. And, and I talked to uh, um, my friend Ruben, who does uh, uh, similar work that Heller does. And he said the challenge is like you're you're trying to solve for five, ten years out potentially, mm -hmm. depending on like how long your runway is, and you're trying to implement something maybe twelve months down the road. And so when you have this future state question it's quite challenging because like, you know, like we have our day-to-day -day problems. We have the, you know, the most important challenges of the day and those kind of uh, wash out kind of that future forward thinking. And that's under normal circumstances. Now we live in an age of COVID in 2020 where it's brought in new factors and new challenges that have really just led to like unfettering uncertainty. That's kind of my, my way of describing it. How how is the conversations shifted, if at all, right now when you're working with clients around this? Like, how do you th how do you create a future state in a future that's extremely unknown? How do you how do you solve for that as a leader? That's a great question. Um, I, I have sort of two general thoughts on that. Uh, thinking about where my current clients fall on that scale, so. Um, you know, with clients who are in the middle of an implementation and already have that clear vision, uh, I think what, what I've seen happen with COVID is there's been uh, a refocusing on that vision, a reassessment of the vision to see if it does still make sense. And when it, it does, really... Um, pulling maybe into two tracks. What can we do immediately to shore up revenue and keep engaging with our constituents? And then how do we ensure the success of this project over the long term? Because this project is what is going to allow us to be successful in this new environment. So, you know, in a, in a current project, really taking that moment to reassess whether your vision is aligned with, with the current situation and where you think the future is going. 
With clients who haven't started that vision yet, uh, you know, we're definitely seeing clients struggling with how to define that vision and how far ahead to define that vision. You know, we're dealing with nonprofits who um, might not be certain that they will have a future post-COVID. And so their vision is two years. <laughs> and how do we shore up revenue to stay in that two-year period? We're also dealing with nonprofits who have received a lot more money and a lot of new donors that they didn't expect because of the pandemic. And so those nonprofits, you know, are looking at an equally short-term vision of how do we bring these transitional or, or, or pandemic-related donors in-house and develop long-term relationships with them. Um, I think in COVID, we're seeing less of those organizations who really want to look at that five to 10-year vision ahead of time, but we still see people who want to make short-term decisions that don't um, prevent them from making effective long-term decisions. So we're still having those conversations about what the future looks like and really focusing on what your strategic goals are as an organization and what your constituents need is the easiest way to pull that away from specific situations, to pull it away from the specific timing of now. That makes sense. Absolutely. It's a great point. And I think you, you hit on something we see here at Virtuous as well as we work with clients over the last six months is there's kind of two camps. There's the camp that has completely flatlined in the age that we're in right now because, you know, their model was completely upended or their fundraising was over indexed on things that don't, you know, are, are impossible right now. Um, or their funding structure was, you know, indexed on things that were service-based and they just can't deliver. The other side of that, that spectrum is those that got flooded and now they're like five X on the donor side. And the, the interesting thing is you would think that they're in like a healthier place, but ironically, it's actually stretched their systems beyond capacity. Okay. And they, they're trying to figure out how to, adjust or shift those systems, you know, the people, the processes and the platforms to be able to accommodate and maximize the opportunity that they have to be able to steward those supporters or, or craft a constituent experience, as you said early on in our conversation, that's going to build lasting relationships. Right. The, the challenge with both of those, and, and you kind of touched on this is like maybe previously there was kind of this solving for, not a fixed state, but like a state of the world that's like, okay, we have this reality. We're trying to get to this vision. There's a lot more fixed variables. But right now, I feel like there's there's more fluctuating variables. And that idea of being able to, to have a vision that has room to explore is really interesting to me. How, how do you all navigate that where it's like, hey, we're going we're gonna to scope two years vision, but we need to make sure that this really system we're building has elasticity to scale or to right. grow or to really flex in a way that is unexpected. How do you intentionally design that into the systems, whether it's people processes or the platform? That's a great question. And it has its intricacies because of COVID, but it's always a question because of how quickly technology is shifting. That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, I've been living in the, the world of watching the technology changes in the nonprofit sector as Microsoft is moving into the market. 
And, you know, Microsoft is, has a long history of disrupting markets and seeing how that's changing things for a lot of our clients where we might have originally worked on a roadmap for a client looking at a single platform. Um, now, more and more with the uh, ability to leverage common data models and integrations, people are looking at pulling an ecosystem together of best-in-breed solutions. And so that also ties into what we're seeing with COVID right now, because in the past, a lot of our clients wanted that CRM as the foundational piece. Let's get the data in the CRM. Let's start getting that 360-degree view. Let's worry about our digital strategy later. Well, COVID has completely upended that. Everybody wants those digital tools and the digital strategy quickly. How do you make a decision on a digital tool today without knowing what your future CRM requirements are? And that's, you know, what we're seeing a lot of where my strategic time is spending a lot of time is really understanding what those options are for a nonprofit today, next year, and five years down the road with the big three players in the market and some of the you know, SMB solutions, small uh, to mid-sized charity solutions, and assessing any technology with a lens to openness to future possibilities. So I think it's, it's, it's leveraging the same skills that we would use around keeping technology open, but just stretching that to also look at business models needing to change. I have one client, for example, um, within uh, two months of the shutdown, their 40% of their fundraising is highly transactional and takes place in the month of April, May, and June. And so essentially they lost that money. They could not go door to door and fundraise. They could not have face-to-face -face events in that time period. They had no choice but to adapt. But we had a technology roadmap and how could they look at adapting with the tools that they had in place with new tools they could put into place that could eventually move into that ecosystem vision over time and still allow them to um, make as much revenue as they could in this completely different situation. So there's still the technology evaluation, there's still the assessment of does this align with your strategic goals and your strategic priorities and then how do we make this work for our constituents as you mentioned that constituent experience how can we give them an experience even though we're not seeing them face to face yeah and that, that's kind of where i wanted to go next is to kind of circle back on that that noted statement constituent constituent experience um and what that actually means going forward, I, and I think like this is something that's really interesting is like you mentioned, we, we almost approach technology as like, oh, we're making a technology change or we need to think about shifting this. And you already talked about creating that future state vision. Sometimes that can very quickly turn internal. What do we need? What needs do we have? How are we going to get there? What impact programs are we implementing? What's, you know, what's the growth plan for this or that? It excludes the constituent experience. How do we, how do we pivot or how do you pivot clients to imagining the constituent experience 
and how that fits into that future vision. Can you walk through some of the like, strategies that you recommend to clients as they think about what that constituent experience really could be and how that fits into the mission? It's a great question. Um, you're 100% right. When you start having these vision and critical success factor discussions, people are bringing their internal um, hat or siloed hat to the table. And uh, what you often see is people um, arguing is a little bit of an overstatement, but, you know, uh, lobbying for their priorities within the organization over other people's priorities. And for many, many years, I have found that bringing people to the constituent is the way to solve those internal conflicts. It also seems to work really effectively to break down those silos. So I've used exercise, exercises where I ask people to represent a particular constituent group in those discussions instead of representing their functional role. And, you know, you can, you can ask them to wear different hats and have them change those hats over time. And then as you talk through examples for a vision, put yourself in those hats or the, that perspective that you're taking on and look for what that experience feels like. Um, we also do journey mapping with our clients and I find that really effective. Let's look at the, the personas or the audiences. You know, people um, sometimes have trouble with like the buzzwords, but essentially let's look at your key audience groups, your constituent groups, who you're interacting with and really understand them. And that helps people put on those hats as well. So if you know that 65% of your donors are 70 years and over, that helps you understand that you need to address that audience, but you also have a problem where that pipeline is going to end at a certain point. Similarly with your volunteers, if all of your volunteers are older and don't embrace technology, um, you have to deal with that as a persona, but then you also need to identify a persona or an audience of, of what that pipeline is going to look like for the future. And I find when you get people thinking from the perspective of, and I think I mentioned the word empathy earlier and change intelligence, helping people change is really about helping them empathize with the people they're trying to serve. Um, and so I find exercise is a really helpful way to get them to do that. I love workshops for change management. Um, and uh, like I said, journeys, building journeys, looking at how uh, a constituent experience is. <laughs> I have a lot of experience doing this from building websites. And so that experience has helped me really put myself in the shoes of a constituent. And I, I read a line, I think it was last night. It was so great. It's like, the last thing you want to do is put any of your frontline workers, the people who are answering the phones or, you know, opening the doors at your service center. The last thing you want to do is put them in a position where they know less about the constituent than the constituent does. And when the constituent is having to tell you their long story of interaction with the organization, you're putting your staff at a disadvantage. And those frontline workers really feel that. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. they're great people to bring into these conversations. What are your experiences with those constituents? How do you think we can improve those experiences? 
I think I think what's interesting here too is that what I see is that we we know bad experiences when we ex- when we have them in our own lives, but we go to the we go to work and create bad experiences all the time unintentionally. Yeah. And and the the one I always think about is like, you know, Kathy, like you call in to fix your internet, which I'm sure you know you've <laughs> done in the past, and you talk to somebody and they're like, enter all this information. You enter all the information on the keypad. You finally get the remote robot to like figure out what the heck you need, and then they deliver you to a customer service rep, and they're like, okay, tell me how how can we help you today? And what what's your thing? Wait, wait, who, what's your problem? What's your address? Let's confirm all this. Yeah. Some of that's confirmation. Some of it's repetitive. And then they're like, Ooh, shoot. This sounds actually more like a area outage problem that we need to con- transfer you to X, Y, and Z man. And they're going to ask you the same five questions that you've answered three times and probably had to call back twice in the last week to solve for. And so we experience that and we're like, that's infuriating. Exactly. And then we design systems that do that for our supporters. How do we, like, that's what I'm hoping for. Like, how do we break that cycle? Cause it's so funny. Like people like, will know what a bad experience is, but we create them every day. Oh, I'm trying, I'm trying to work with my clients to design experiences that don't result in that. Um, and I think back to my time at the Canadian Cancer Society and, uh, one of the, the funniest, simplest examples that really helped people understand things there, um, you know, we were working with uh, an older uh, staff base, many of whom had been with the organization since before computers existed and trying to move them to a a web-based CRM platform um, with digital uh, integration. And this was probably 10 years ago. And people kept uh, you know, focusing on themselves and how they would have to learn differently and why do I have to put all this data into the system and how is this going to benefit me? And then one day we were doing one of those visioning exercises and asking people to put themselves in the shoes of people who were walking in the door or coming in and uh, one of the receptionists all of a sudden said, do you mean to tell me that if we all do this properly, I am going to get fewer phone calls from people telling me to stop mailing their dead or deceased relatives. And all of a sudden, everybody got it because she talked about that experience of the person, you know, that my mother had that experience, getting phone calls and getting letters from my father after he had passed away and how devastating that was and how she experienced the devastation of those families. And so she was able to make that experience real for someone. And all of a sudden, the entire room just was quiet And you could see that people were thinking through like, oh, that's an experience. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. And so then we did go on to discuss those pass the buck phone calls and asking people to restate everything. And so when we did our training on the CRM, we leveraged those stories. Remember I said change management was a lot about deep and effective listening. Listen for those challenges people are having. Listen listen for those moments of experience you can hear from people and then use them to design your training to ensure that people adopt the solution. That's a powerful story, Kathy. And I think it's one that reminds us of what you and those in that listserv experience, that really the work that we're all trying to do, the cause work that's essential in our world, is a people with people process. There's a humanity to it. 
And a lot of times, like the systems and the the tech and the ones and zeros we're all taping together hide that and mask that. And we really need to reveal that humanity and remember that people are coming together with other people to make a change in our world for good. And how do we keep that at the forefront of any technology project or any strategy change, regardless of COVID or the future challenges we're all going to face um, as we move forward? Great question. One of the uh, great uh, examples I've seen quite a few clients do is using mission moments. Um, so whether you're posting short videos that you might have on your YouTube channel right inside your CRM uh, as people are trying to adopt the platform, uh, using stories in your internal communications about the impact something actually has. Uh, I have another great example of a, a vision uh, and really making that real for people. And it's actually another CTO story. Pe you know, people working with a, a children's wish organization, trying to come up with a vision of, of the future and helping people understand that future vision and really why they're embarking on this change. And people were talking about things like, uh, you know, we might be able to do these processes 15 minutes faster or 15% faster. We might be able to reduce staff. Um, we might free up staff time to do different things. And then the CTO walked in the room and basically said, um, my vision is that we can get kids to their wish faster. And just really bringing it to that. What is the ultimate goal that we're trying to achieve? How does that tie into our mission and pulling it away from the technology? then people can overcome any of those technical hurdles as they're trying to learn. And if they're struggling, then just reminding them with some of those mission videos. Absolutely. And I think, again, it goes back that, like, you know, the people that are part of the work that we do, whether it's Kathy, you and your team at Heller or our team here at Virtuous or the clients we both collectively serve, we, we still are doing this. I, I would hope so. And anyone listening to this, I would hope so. That we're doing this because of the mission and that matters. And so always making sure we keep that at the top of the list is something that we try to do a lot here at Virtuous. I know you all do at Heller as well. And it's, it's so essential to the success of the projects that we do. And I, and I kind of, we could spend hours talking, Kathy, but I don't think anyone wants to listen to that. <laughs> so I kind of want to leave, you know, listeners with uh, some practical and like kind of pragmatic advice from you in someone that's been in the operator's chair, but also now, you know, work shoulder to shoulder with operators as they drive change in their organization. What are two or three things that you really would encourage or implore fundraising leaders or nonprofit leaders listening to this to keep top of mind as they wade forward in 2020 and push into 2021? That's a great question. The first word that actually came to mind is resilience. You know, if I, if I monitor any of my change management resources, everybody's talking about resilience. It's so critical right now. And it is a big part of change management. Change is hard for people. We're living in this constant flux of change right now. Um, and so building up your personal ability to be resilient is, uh, is probably one of the most important pieces of advice that anybody can take right now around change. Then if I sort of step away from, from that immediate thought, uh, I 
you know, we really like to encourage organizations to think both short-term and long-term and to really understand understand that strategy and vision. So even if you're looking to make a short-term investment and a transition to digital, if it's an area that you haven't leveraged before, um, really taking that minute to think about what your longer-term strategy is so that when you make an investment, for a short-term pivot from, you know, a marketing, an email marketing tool or an email blast tool to a marketing automation tool, you're able to think about what you want to do with that tool, both in the short-term and the long-term. And, and do that gut check that I mentioned about not limiting your options moving forward. And then finally, just <laughs> it's basic advice, but do the next right thing. You know, once you've made the decision, commit to the decision and take those steps to actually implement it and see those successes. And any of those early successes, even if it's just changing from one marketing platform to another um, and starting to see different results, if it's just taking those 40,000 new donors to a food bank and putting them into a journey and um, getting them more engaged in your organization and in the, the challenges that your organization is facing, that's a positive step into the future around constituent engagement. Um, and we'll use another example because um, I have been uh, making personal donations to food banks um, and sort of watching how those food banks are reacting to it. And you mentioned earlier organizations that have crashed as part of this. Uh, we had a, you know, a telethon here in Canada that supported Food Banks Canada. And this, the, 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 the huge success of the response during that telethon actually crashed both their website and their um, text-to-give platform during that telethon. So it's like both a great story and the nightmare of every technology person. <laughs> um, but what I found really interesting is that as they've taken all of these new donors, they've brought them on a journey of stories. And the email that came through a couple of weeks ago as kids were ready, getting ready to go back to school um, was an email that contained videos to help families and children understand food insecurity in Canada. And what a great way to combine programming and awareness with bringing people on that journey to turn them from a transactional pandemic donor into potentially a lifetime donor um, and raise awareness at the same time. I thought that was a really, really great way to, to pull together, you know, a reaction to an immediate situation that had challenges with technology and then pull in the, the human side of things to bring people on for the future. Yeah, and it's such a positive reminder. You talked about this idea of resilience. And one thing that our team sent out yesterday, actually, was just a reminder that, you know, even though 2020 has presented new challenges that very few could have prepared for, it's not all bad news. Mm. Generosity is resilient. Volunteering, grants, donations are up from next year. 2020 continues to reveal something we've seen time and time again. People want to help. It's innate in all of us to give, to help, to stand up, to stay home, to serve those around us as we can. And when we do, it's personal. Absolutely. And I love that reminder because, again, we're in the hope 
business in some ways. And we have to remember that as we move forward. So I appreciate the reminders, Kathy. Well, thank you for, uh, for the chat. <laughs> really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the Responsive Fundraising Blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You'll also get the Responsive Fundraising Playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is gonna be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast. 